Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. She looks so much like a lady, but she was so much like a child. The devil when she held me close, an angel when she smiled. She always held it deep inside, but somehow I always knew. She'd go away when the grass turned green and the sky turned baby blue. Baby blue was the color of her eyes Baby blue like the Colorado skies Like a breath of spring she came and left And I still don't know why So here's to you and whoever holds my baby blue She brought colors to my life That my eyes had never touched When she taught me how to care I never cared so much I tried not to think of her But I fall asleep and do And drift off where the grass is green The sky is baby blue Baby blue was the color of her eyes Baby blue like the Colorado skies Like a breath of spring she came and left And I still don't know why So here's to you and whoever holds my baby blue I still don't know why So here's to you And whoever holds my baby blue tonight Baby blue Was the color of her eyes Baby blue Like the Colorado skies Baby blue Was the color of her eyes We're here with Aaron Barker, and uh, we're here to talk about 
your some of your songs, some of your hit songs, or some of the not hit songs too, or oh, some things okay. that are on the shelf, yeah, as well. If you'd like, so it's, it's really it. up to you on what song you'd like to start with. I'll start at the beginning with a song called Baby Blue. Uh, that's where my whole career started. In order to get out of the truck stop job I was in, a band came through one night looking for a bass player, and they were filling up their little van and said they were seeking a bass player. So the next day I went and bought a bass guitar and started and set up an audition. And uh, I guess they were bad enough to uh, where I actually got the gig. And I joined that band. That was in San Antonio, Texas, my hometown which is full of military bases, a lot of Air Force, some Army. And uh, because of that, we started playing on these Air Force bases. Well, at that time, uh, the tail end of the Vietnam War, they were getting new troops in every six weeks. So we were getting thousands of new people in our audience on a regular basis. They would go out and ask for my band in Denver, in Wichita Falls, Texas, all over the country. So we ended up just touring like that. Well, we'd be out on the road, whether it was in vans or trucks or buses, as it evolved. I always uh, kept an acoustic guitar with me, even though I was a bass player in the band, and wrote songs that I thought were in the vein of uh, James Taylor, Cat uh, Stevens. I loved that era, the Crosby, Stills, Nash era, the acoustic singer-songwriter era. Neil Diamond was my biggest influence ever. I've had the opportunity to meet him and write with him three times, write with him twice, meet him once, and I've declined all three times based on the theory that you never meet your heroes. I have him in a place in my mind, speaking of Neil Diamond, that he can't possibly be. He can't be what I have him made up to be, so it wouldn't be fair to him or me. Although now I'm an older guy, I would love to sit down and tell him thank you because he means so much to me. He triggered this, and that's what I thought I was writing, more adult contemporary stuff. I had a country background from my youth, but I'd been playing this rock and roll now for a couple of decades. In my spare time, I would sit there and write these things, and this baby blue got into my mind. Uh, we were down in Mississippi, headed to Colorado, and it just kind of flowed out. I don't really know the inspiration for it. But it just kind of wrote itself from a melody into these words that sounded good with that melody. And I never thought much of it. I had joined BMI uh, as a youngster because I was writing songs for my band. But this was outside of that. And I would go home and make little cassettes of these songs, give them to my mother and my brothers and friends around town. And this particular song, Baby Blue, was on a cassette with three or four other songs. And a friend of mine, I was actually frustrated to the point because my career was going nowhere as a writer. And I was just frustrated. I had this drawer full of lyrics and tablets. And I was about to throw them all away. I think I literally had them in the air over my console. And I was going to the trash can. And a buddy said, no, just give me some of those cassettes. Let me just keep them. And one of them that I gave him had these four or five songs on it, one being Baby Blue, and he took them to a fella in Hondo, Texas, named Bill Butler, who was by profession a pharmacist, owned a pharmacy and a grocery store, but he was a uh, publisher as well, had a great little eight-track studio. For the time, that was pretty high-end stuff. 
And uh, he heard those ca- that cassette and didn't really care for any of it. But he set the cassette down, and Bill Butler made an annual trek to Nashville to kind of throw stuff around of the writers that he had accumulated. And that cassette got in there in that stack that he brought to Nashville. And all it had on it was a piece of masking tape that said Aaron. That's all it said. And that tape ended up getting inadvertently dropped off at Irv Wolsey's office, George Strait's manager. He heard it. He played it for George. George loved the song Baby Blue off of that cassette. So Irv Wolsey took the time to track me down through Bill Butler. Bill Butler said, yeah, I'll I'll get him for you, you know, and... uh, I ended up signing with Bill Butler, and then he worked a deal with Earl Wolsey, and I had no idea what this meant because uh, I just played in a band. I never made money writing, and I thought whoever this George Strait guy is, because I didn't know who he was. I was in the rock and roll world up to my ears, but uh, he lived right up the road from where I lived. He lived in San Marcos. I was in San Antonio, and I didn't know who he was. But I thought, well, if if he records my song, maybe he'll send me like $500, you know. So I was pretty happy over that. At the time, the band was breaking up. I was selling oranges off the back of my truck to make the house payment. Time went by, and and no $500 check showed up. I thought, well, I guess that George guy didn't make it, you know. (laughs) He must not have made it. He already had like four gold albums or something at the time, but I didn't know. And then another year went by, and this envelope showed up in my mailbox. And uh, it was from BMI, and I thought, of all times for BMI to start charging a membership fee, you know. And uh, I opened that envelope, and then there was a check with my name on it. The amount was for more than my house cost. I automatically went to, boy, did BMI make a big mistake here, because I had never even heard of money like that in reality, not even on a game show, you know. So... I was pretty sure it was a mistake. That was a Friday evening, and I thought, well, Monday I'll call up to BMI and figure out what's going on. In the meantime, I wanted my mother to see my name on a check like that. She had put up with this guy that practiced in her garage with his band till the cops showed up for years, and then more spandex and big hair playing rock and roll till he was 35. My mother deserved to see that check. So I drove over there. I showed her the check. She was really excited about it, and I didn't tell her it was most likely an error. I just wanted her to have that moment of joy, but she looked at it, showed it to my stepdad, and he looked at that check, and he said, Aaron, I get these all the time. You never really win. <laughs> so he thought it was Publishers clear. Yeah, yeah, he was looking for Ed McMahon space on it or something. And so that was a funny, funny moment. That was the beginning of the whole thing, and that check I called Monday to see if it was an error, and a fellow named Harry Warner, who worked at BMI, uh, had to look it up. That's pre-computerized stuff, pretty much. And he uh, he came back and said, uh, no, that's yours, Aaron. He said, that's from that George Strait recording. And uh, he said, those will be showing up about every three months for a while. So that's life-changing. And what those checks did pretty much is just fix a lot of broken stuff in my life. I was older when I got into this thing. The band was falling apart. I was 35 so I showed up at the circus real late here in Nashville. I was so grateful for that. You know, it got me a car that started when I turned the key. You know, I got four new tires instead of one at a time. Just things like that that you just think about every day and you wish for and you pray for. And all of a sudden it was here. And I made a pact with God. Or 
I said, I, I just won't ask for anything anymore because I had prayed for a break. This, all I wanted in my life was a break, just one year to rethink, regroup, and figure out where I was going. And all of a sudden, I had this incredible gift and uh, handed down to me. And I just, so I, I told God, I'm not going to ask for it again. This is enough. And I've always lived like that was it. And then a few years later, Love Without End became a number one song. And there were more after that, but that one is the only one I really wanted. And I tried, I always want another hit, but I try to never need one because then you get kind of desperate, you know. And I felt desperate at times, but Baby Blue was a life changer. And so that went to number one on the it country did. charts. It did. And did you have a number one party? We did. Uh, I barely had money to go to it. I don't really remember. I was so poor. Ah, not poor. Just didn't have a lot of cash because these things happen. The song is number one. And when it's number one, the artist and the management and the record company all have a big party. And of course, you're welcome to it. But it was in Nashville and I was in San Antonio. We don't get our funds for about a year after it is on the chart. So it's kind of out of sync there. Generally, I don't know that writers are too too cash short to go to their number one party. And I wasn't that. I had to borrow the money, though, from Bill Butler. He loaned me the money to fly up here and, and be part of that. But it's so out of sync. They're all celebrating a number one. Then a year later, the writer gets their, their money, and they want to celebrate, too. And everybody goes, oh, that's an old song. You know, all the <laughs> all the celebrations over. They've had five more number ones since then. So the writers, we're kind of on our own, which... Is a bonding unit, I think. It's a bonding element for the writers here in Nashville. So I, I celebrated on that one. So Baby Blue, you talk about the Colorado blues I guy, do, which yeah. is not where you're from. No, I'm from Texas, and I'll tell you what, I think this will make sense to you. Being from San Antonio, that's a wide open kind of a uh, desert area. So we have a big, beautiful sky. But in Colorado, it was a unique experience for me. They had mountains, they had rivers, but mostly they had these enormous trees. So you have these evergreens growing up 60, 70 feet in the air, 100 feet. And that sky off of that green looks so exceptionally blue to me because it was framed in these. So to me, that was the bluest sky I had experienced at that point. I thought about Mississippi, because Mississippi has big pine trees and the sky looks very blue, but it rains almost every day. So you kind of get this gray tint to it sometimes. But when we hit Colorado out of uh, Aurora, Colorado, I drove up to Estes Park and I just saw this incredibly blue sky off of the green trees. And, and that's why I used Colorado skies, because they were just so definitively blue to me. I'm a little color deficient uh, with my vision, but... I can tell certain colors, and I could tell that blue so profoundly off of that green. So that's, I guess, why I used it. It just really had an effect on me. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard a song you wrote on the radio? I do. Tell me about that. I, I don't know if anybody would ever forget something like that. I was, uh, I still had the band. It was the last days of the of the band. It really wasn't a formal band anymore, but we had several commitments that I put guys together to fill, and we had this show in Corpus Christi, Texas. Drove down there in a Cadillac with a trailer on the back, I think, because we didn't have our bus anymore or anything. So we just wanted to make sure we filled our contract. And coming back, 
It was probably three in the morning, and I'm driving up uh, I-37 or Highway 281, whatever it is, and that, that ties the two together at that time. And I'm driving along, and uh, I heard that steel guitar come in on Baby Blue, and I knew what it was. And uh, I pulled over. I mean, I couldn't believe it because coming off of a, off of radio, I'm a broadcast nut. I love broadcasting. And uh, when I was a little kid, laying in my bunk bed, I could look out the window and see these three radio towers from KBER Radio, and the lights blinked in sequence on the top, the little red lights. And I would go to sleep watching those lights and listening to a guy named Jerry King, uh, the, the DJ, who I later met, and we're really good friends now. But I would listen to his voice and watch those lights and go to sleep. And I would always imagine he's down here, and it actually was a little motor, mobile home with his broadcast, you know, like we're sitting here kind of with these mics in front of us. And I knew that his voice, I didn't know how at the time, but his voice was coming off of that tower, those towers, and coming to my radio reaching me in the middle of the night while I'm going to sleep. And it was a comforting thing. So I've been a fan of broadcasting forever. And here all of a sudden are these words and this melody that I put together on a band bus in the middle of the night coming out of Colorado, you know, and they're coming off. Of I'd heard George's recording of it. MCA is always gracious enough to call us and say, you got to hear this. But to hear it on the radio and know that wasn't me that called and said, hey, could you play that song? It just happened. And it's a moment. Yeah, so I was somewhere between San Antonio and Corpus Christi sitting on the side of the road with a choir of coyotes around me listening to Baby Blue, and it was uh, an overwhelmingly you know, great moment. Couldn't believe it. But you didn't think that a check was going to come a few months from that I did not. That, I really thought it was going to be $500. That, for some reason, $500 stuck in my head. I must have really needed $500. I had no idea. Had no idea. And you didn't know that it was rising in the charts? You, you didn't follow that? I didn't that? follow any of that. Uh, Bill Butler, you know, he kept me kind of informed, the publisher down in Hondo, but I didn't, I was struggling desperately at the time and uh, didn't have, I didn't even, I had no idea what, the, and, you know, I'd signed the publishing deal with Bill. I'd been a member of BMI, so none of that ever occurred to me. You know, it just, I knew nothing about the business of music. I knew music a little bit, and even now I'm not, I am in no way qualified to deal with the business end of music. I know very little about it. I've made a lot of mistakes uh, dealing with business people, you know, because I step on toes thinking that's my job and my responsibility, and so I get people mad at me because I don't know the business. I don't want to know the business. So you have Baby Blue, goes to number one. Mm -hmm. George Strait says to you, what else you got? Is he did, <laughs> yeah. His manager did. They signed me immediately after Baby Blue and thought they would get me a record deal as an artist. George seemed to like the way I sang, although I've never been fond of it myself. Uh, and so for a long time, they actually shopped me for a record deal, and I landed on Atlantic Records, proceeded to make probably the worst record ever made in Nashville. I haven't heard them all, but I've got to be in there in the, t in the top worst five it was a terrible record. I was very uncomfortable with it. I thought I, I could do it. I thought I could go ahead and go out and play the shows and stuff. I'd been on the road for 20 years anyway. But they started highlighting my hair and dyeing my beard and took me over to uh, Banana Republic to buy clothes. And I started feeling kind of phony, you know. 
Then the money thing got in there where they said, well, we want this much of the deal and we want this much of the deal. And I've never, ever been musically motivated by money, ever. And money became such an important element of it. I was really uncomfortable in that. And finally, uh, I was kind of just relieved that the the record was so bad (laughs) because it wasn't going to go anywhere. And uh, the video was uh, a little ahead of its time, and it got played a lot on TNN, whatever those shows were at the time. What was the song? Uh, It's called The Taste of Freedom. And the video guys seemed to love it. It was was a Vietnam-era song. It was based in the Vietnam era about a guy who— you know, went over there and paid for freedom, came back and found out he was he didn't have his girlfriend anymore, and it was a different kind of freedom than he expected. And it's kind of a sad story. And that that was Bob Orman's critique on it was get a life because it's kind of that, that kind of song, God it just lost everything. And it but we had uh soldiers in there. We showed some scenes. I didn't put the video together. I just wrote the song and stood on a platform and sang, and then they put in all the stuff around me. But in that process, they they staged scenes of, uh, you know, soldiers in the jungle, and in there were uh, uh, African-American soldiers, which is very Vietnam. Those guys, man, they stepped up, you know? And so it was real. But I guess certain people in country music weren't quite ready for that and I took a serious beating for that I was I'm not going to repeat what I was told but that I knew that day and I was commuting from San Antonio and I went back to the Ramada Inn and almost cried I was so shocked and disappointed that these people who are making literally hundreds of millions of dollars were still in that frame of mind it stunned me and I knew that day this is done. I'm done with this because I have no idea what I'm up against. That's the last thing I thought I would be up against. Two or three years later, Travis Tritt came out with I Don't Love You Anymore, and he not only had a black vet, but he had a disabled black vet and featured him in that video, and it was fine. But that two or three years just made enough difference. Uh, that's I'm not blaming that for everything. It was a bad record. But that element, really shocked me completely and if I could use the language that they used and the references that they used you would understand why it was so shocking it wasn't just that oh you've got black guys in your video it's it's the way they presented it to me you felt they were wrong I knew they were wrong and uh, the record label was fine with it but there were certain parties that just weren't going to it's hard. It's hard when you know it. you're on the side of right. Well, and you're, it's up to them. It's your money all the time. It's your name on the record. It's your picture on the record. But there are still people that yank all the chains. And uh, that was just a shocker for me. It wasn't the, the kiss of death. It wasn't the end game. But it was a part for me that just my heart just kind of went, you know what? <laughs> I just want to make songs, man, and I'll give them to somebody else. to Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money 